Good afternoon. Uh, it's five o'clock when it's evening. I probably should have been saying evening this whole time. Uh, good evening. It's good to be with you guys. Um, we're getting to the point, apparently, in life here in the desert where I only need to wear pants, like with legs, on Sunday. <laughs> because it's like all shorts and t-shirts from here on out. This is amazing. I still feel like I'm on vacation. Uh, I'm from Wisconsin. For the folks that are going to Wisconsin, good luck. I, I went back in um, December. It was in the negative 30s for like five days of my trip there. So yeah, it makes a man out of you, I guess, though. It, it definitely toughens you up. Or a woman out of you. It doesn't turn women into men. That's not what I meant. Uh, but it's great to be with you guys. Um, I, I intend to continue our thinking about uh, life and the resurrection. And there, there's this odd uh, season in, in the story of the Bible. You may have noticed uh, from when Jesus, um, when they find the tomb to be empty, and then seven weeks-ish later, there's a festival called Shavuot. And again, everyone comes back to town for the holiday um, and then we, we get this amazing moment uh, with the early followers and God pours his spirit out. But there's this, this season in between that's really good to identify with and, and think about for a while. And I think it's in this moment, after Jesus having risen um, and Pentecost, where we learn a lot about, uh, maybe you could say, what God is like. Uh, there are these encounters that are strange. <laughs> and even uh, if you read the text, you, it, you might be thinking, like, why are they acting like that around Jesus? Uh, but there's something, uh, there's something different about Jesus having raised from the dead. Um, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's an odd kind of physicality uh, that he brings to the world after having raised from the dead. It's important to, to know this, that when these, these women come after the Sabbath to the grave to, to prepare Jesus' body for a long, slow decomposition, uh, when they come there uh, and they, they don't find him, the idea isn't that Jesus' ghost rose or that Jesus' soul rose from the dead. They find the tomb to be empty. The material of his body is not there. And in that moment, the world is kind of cracked open. All of the expectations they had to find their, their master, their, their teacher dead and dying. Instead, they find uh, that the tomb is empty. And even there's a, the accounts of Mary and John where she turns and she sees Jesus, but she struggles to even recognize him. You find that again in chapter 21. There's this odd uh, little sentence. It's almost like a parenthetical sentence where they're eating with Jesus. And, and he says, and no one dared ask if it was Jesus. Like, well, why say that? Like, what a weird thing to say. You're eating with him. But there, there is something strange, and perhaps it's just being utterly disoriented, that they watched him die. Not only did they watch him die, and this is crucial for understanding this moment within the story, they played a hand in him dying. They're part of the, the problem. In fact, the Lord's Supper, as it comes to be retold in the church, not too long after Jesus' death, 
burial and resurrection. They include on the night he was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by who? Oh, his friends, his disciples. They betrayed him. And and the, the story of the Bible holds on to their failures as friends and as disciples because it's their having failed that opens the door for us to see that God's way with failures and those who break faith with God is to take this step and initiate and restore fellowship that has been broken by human infidelity. And we see that in those in, in these these encounters be up to Pentecost. So I encourage you to sit with uh, with this in, in each of the Gospels. John's is especially um, exciting. But uh, this this moment uh, we had Easter a couple weeks ago, and then last Sunday, uh, if I'm remembering right, Scott went a little further into uh, the idea of resurrection. Um, and I've just been spending time with this. I, I do this every year about this time. And I've been brought back to a small text from Mark, the gospel according to Mark, chapter 12. It's small and uh, profoundly deep. It's like it goes all the way down. There's so much happening. Uh, but it deals with this, uh, what I'm describing here, expectations for uh, death, and the afterlife and resurrection. Um, so this is going to be our, our, my metaphor. And I hope this helps. But are you familiar with this phrase? Seeing the forest for the trees. I think the British version or initially is like seeing the wood for the trees. Does anyone know what this is? What does it mean? Anybody? Seeing you don't see the forest for the trees. You never heard this? Okay, here's the idea. You're, you're caught up in the details. It's an idiom, right? You don't see the forest for the trees, man. That's a cool thing kids are saying nowadays or something. But, but the idea is we get, we get into the forest and we go right up to the trees and we're like this close for extended periods of time studying the bark in the tree and we forget over time that this tree is a part of a massive ecosystem and you've got to step back from the tree and come out to the edge of the tree line and notice that there are acres of forest in front of you. But you miss it. It's an idiom for talking about getting so immersed in the details in what you know and what you think you can know that you don't ever take a second to step back and see the whole thing. And that's, I think, kind of what we're going to encounter in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. But previously in the Gospel of Mark, remember when they used to do that when you come back like, uh, Friday Night Lights or something that previously on previously on Melrose Place previously on uh, 90210. So just before what we're about to read, we we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus very intentionally uh, provokes everybody in town on the Passover by taking this royal trek uh, down the hill and up to the city, and he moves right into the epicenter right into the, the, the capital, and he tips over tables and, and offers a critique of the entire way of thinking about God. The temple I'm talking about. The temple as a kind of centerpiece for the religion. Jesus comes in and says, yeah, you're, you're missing the point. And that's actually the nail in the coffin, so to speak, for Jesus. There's no escape after what he has just done. 
But after this, Mark details these encounters with Pharisees and today with Sadducees, where he is challenged. Like, who do you think you are to act like that? To come into town like you're king? Who do you think you are? And Jesus is very clear about who he thinks he is. But they try to push him and trap him and prove that you're a false messiah. You're not one people should be listening to. Uh, you shouldn't be leading anybody. But that's where, where, we've, where we've been. So let, let's take it. Uh, let's take it on. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, so first of all, um, we need to identify what a Sadducee is. Uh, and it's not super clear what a Sadducee is. They don't have any books. They didn't, they didn't write anything that uh, we found that we could read what they think about themselves. Um, they do appear a few times in the gospel, always in Jerusalem. They, they seem to be connected to the priestly class, and that's kind of a complicated discussion of how that comes to be. I guess it's not that complicated. It has to do with the period be, between what we call the Old and New Testaments. Um, but uh, they're often connected to the temple. They're connected to the elites. They seem to be more popular among the wealthy than among the common folk, like the Pharisees, who were much more popular among uh, common folk. But they, uh, they, Josephus writes that they were harsh with anyone who broke a rule. <laughs> uh, they were, they were not open to, maybe we could call it like an unseen world or like an unseen setting for reality. In their minds, that's not what scripture teaches. They didn't believe in the resurrection according to the New Testament or angels or spirits according to Luke. So they sound very familiar, honestly. <laughs> I think, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but I think even within the church, we tend to have some fellowship with the Sadducees that we ought not to. But the Sadducees are very interested, I think, in protecting some of their status but also trying to help this young rabbi understand that he has not thoughtfully considered Moses' teaching. Now Moses' teaching is, they at least believe Moses had some authority, what Moses wrote in, in Scripture. So at least parts of, if not all, of the first five books of, the, uh, of what we call the Old Testament uh, they believed that that's where you could find what God wants to say and anything you needed to know about hope, you'd find there. At least there. It's not clear whether they believed there was authority in later parts of the Bible. But they're, they're, they're pretty rigid about that. And so it's hard to tell. Is this a friendly encounter? Probably based on what we're reading, since they sort of represent or are... are um, Connected to the life in the temple, they're probably not super excited about Jesus. But they bring to him uh, a they bring to him to him a very specific law uh, from Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five. It's like verses five through ten, um, and the basic sense is 
if, if a person, if a man marries a woman and he dies before she can have children, that man has no future. He has no stake in the community and his name just sort of gets erased from history. There is no afterlife for this man. The way that, especially in these early parts of the Bible where this thought about uh, a resurrection is not full-blown or fully developed. But the Sadducees believe this is how, if there is an afterlife, it's through kids. If you can't have kids, it's for this reason that the barren woman is the most scorned. And by the way, God's choice time and time again. But if, if the man has no child, it's the brother's duty to take his widow and consummate the marriage and provide a child for his deceased brother so that his brother will have a stake in Israel. So to speak, he'll have an afterlife. Is this making sense? And so they bring to him this command and they're leading somewhere. They're trying to make the point that a hope in the resurrection and Moses' teaching are not compatible. And they quote By the way, this is what the book of Ruth is really all about. If you're interested in Ruth, it's a short book. You should read it. Really inspiring. But they actually offer a quote from a story in the book of Genesis. It's chapter 38. And it's a a scandalizing story. It has to do with prostitution and uh, it's, yeah, go read it. It's for adults. Put it that way. Uh, but, But they quote this phrase. It's about Judah and Tamar. And They say that the man must take the widow and the text actually says, raise up seed. And that's a quotation from Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. Uh, In in Hebrew, it's hakeim zerah. You raise up. And that's actually the word for resurrection right there. Jesus is paying attention to everything they're saying and he's going to seize the moment when the time comes. You want to talk about raising up seed and barrenness, let's go. But... They're quoting from a story in the book of Genesis, which obviously they think carries some weight. Jesus is going to lead them right back there. But listen to their ridiculous question. We haven't even got into what they want to say yet. Watch. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Okay, in the resurrection, when the dead rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her in in as a wife. Okay, so I think they're kind of like, like, mic drop. Like, you know, it's kind of (laughs) like, I've told you, like, you know, I was really, like, I thought I was a b-boy. But it's like one of these moves. Like, (laughs) you're like, got you. Prove to me how resurrection works based on this philosophical puzzle we just put on your lap. It's a ridiculous story. (laughs) Imagine that happening. Poor woman. Poor family. Imagine you're number four in line. And number three, one and two has died. And number three, you're like, man, if he dies, I'm next. 
There's actually a story like that in the book of Tobit, which I think this little puzzle is a reflection on the story from Tobit, where this woman named Sarah gets married. And before she can consummate the marriage, a demon kills her her husband. And that happens seven times. And finally, she prays and God gives her a man named Tobias. They live happily ever after. Also, in the book of Second Maccabees, there's a story of seven brothers about resurrection. And so I think they're being pretty subtle and careful and And trying to present a case that's going to be hard for Jesus to handle. But but they think that if this woman has had seven brothers and God has not been able to bring this woman a child after seven different suitors, how could resurrection be possible? And, and, And why give a command like this? If a person's going to raise it from the dead one day, why are we so hung up on offspring? But see, they, they're wondering, okay, let's say there is a resurrection when the dead raised Jesus, okay? Let's say there is a resurrection. Now, whose wife is she? Imagine the shame in the resurrection. Imagine raising from your grave only to find there are seven guys who are like, she's mine, no, she's mine. No, she's mine. The shame that you bring in with you to this new resurrected life. Watch Jesus' response. It's blow away. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus, first of all, two problems with y'all's puzzle. Number one, you don't know the scriptures. Now, wait a second. They're quoting scripture. I think the, the Sadducees were likely biblical specialists. Biblicists, maybe. They knew the text. Jesus launches, instead of like engaging in this puzzle, you don't know the scriptures. That's your first problem. That's precisely what they did know. And he says, you don't know, you don't, what does he say? Nor the power of God. You're not understanding. Everything you're reading, the stuff you're throwing at me, your assumptions are flawed. What you're thinking scripture is about, you can't even see it. Because here's what they do. We do this too. If it doesn't say it in the Bible, I won't believe it. Show me the scripture where it says there'll be a resurrection from the dead. Now, there are a few very late verses in the, what we call the Old Testament that suggest there'll be a, an individual resurrection from the dead. But those, those aren't all the, New, the Old Testament has to say about resurrection. But Jesus doesn't launch into a Bible study. Let's sit down and I'm going to prove to you and quote all the passages that say there'll be a resurrection. You know why? Because there aren't really any. But the Sadducees are, show me in the scriptures where it says that. Ring a bell. (laughs) We do this too. We do this too. I won't believe it if I don't see it in scripture. Jesus says, see, scripture is not something one figures out as some sort of puzzle, but it is witnessing to the power and mercy of God. But you are in the forest with your nose on the tree like this, studying the trees. 
And you've never stepped back to notice that there's a forest in front of you. You failed to read the scripture for all of your study of it. You're looking for something that ain't there. And in your quest to find the thing you're after, you're blind to what scripture is actually trying to say to you. It's unbelievable. We, this happens to us. This is apparently why we encounter the Sadducees in the New Testament. They're like us. Church folks, specifically. Bible readers. We miss the forest for the tree. <laughs> we pay all of our attention to the details. And then we can't figure out why things don't make sense to us. Where does Jesus talk about any of that stuff that he says is in the Old Testament? I can't find it. You've got to step back for a second. You've got to think bigger. How are you doing? That's the, first, that's, that, that's the problem. You don't understand Scripture, and you don't understand the power of God. And if you understood Scripture, you'd understand the power of God. Because that's what it's trying to do, is show you that. God isn't some dead figure from the past. He's living presence, and Scripture's trying to draw you into reality. But this, this, the, the assumption is, and this is what Jesus really goes after, and this is hard. I would be embarrassed to be one of these guys arguing with Jesus after what he's about to do. Which is to say, you assume that the world we live in, our experience in the world, is going to continue on forever. Or that if there is an afterlife, what it basically is, is a continuation of what things are like now. And that's the grid they're using. Okay, if there is a resurrection, then, you know, we, we got to think about what we know about reality and feel how can that work if there's a resurrection. Jesus is like, no, that's insane. The future, God's good future, is not governed by the conditions and laws which govern the experience we have now. Eternal life, so to speak, everlasting life, is not an extension of how things are now forever. There is a change that occurs. Now Jesus, when he appears to his disciples, they're like, Jesus? But at the same time, he, he's physical before them. Do you have something to eat? Touch and see. I'm not a ghost, he says in Luke. But he, he allows them to put their fingers in the marks that they played a role in him having. The past, what he went through, is there, but it's not the thing that defines the new life. Do you get that? It's similar in the resurrection, but it's different. Don't use now to try to understand then, because you'll fail. And you'll come up with stupid puzzles like this. To try to make sense of it. Think of it this way. The baby in the womb. Imagine for a child, if it had the, 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 the ability to reason, trying to make sense of life outside the womb from within. What, what do babies do when they exit the womb? I've never been in the room. I saw it in health class. But I haven't seen a live birth of a, a human baby. Uh, but what do they do? The scream. <laughs> you go from breathing liquid to breathing air, and it's bright, and it's disorienting, and they shriek in terror. That's more helpful when you want to think about the resurrection. 
Don't try now from within the womb to make sense of what it's like. And if you do, you're going to come up with stuff like this, trying to make sense of it. You see, you don't understand the power of God. You assume, you just assume, show me a scripture where it says it. So you assume there's no passage that tells you that it's going to be different. So you just assume it's going to be the same if there is one. And that's why you don't believe it. The very scriptures that you study have blinded you. It's not just a matter of what you read or how deep you go, but how you actually read is also important. But Jesus doesn't stop there. (laughs) And he really goes for the jugular next. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Or as the old King James says, ye therefore do err, or greatly err. You have missed the boat. Haven't you read the story of Moses? Now, do you think they have? Of course they have. What an odd story for Jesus to point to, to try to convince them that resurrection is not only possible, but a full-fledged guarantee. What a strange story to point to. As I said, there are others, but he's drawing them out. He said, I want you to come with me. Come out from your the boundaries of your comfortable place and let's do an actual Bible study for the first time and let me lead you into the heart of Scripture because there you'll find that resurrection is not only possible if you're open, it's inevitable. And this passage that he quotes from, everyone familiar with the story of Exodus or at least the prince of Egypt? Or the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston's. Uh, so you know the story. Moses is on the run for decades. And he's out as a shepherd in the backside of the wilderness, the text says. And he finds God in a bush burning, which is an impossibly deep passage. But there God appears to Moses. And he appears as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who I am. That's how he reveals himself to Moses. And he's about to summon Moses to march back to Egypt, right up to the capital, and confront the king of Egypt to let the Israelites go. But he begins with finding Moses and saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, some have imagined, here's Jesus' point. Don't you see? It says, I am, which by the way is not in Mark's text or in, or in Exodus. But he says, I am the God of Abraham. See, I am. Not I was. I am. Not I was the God of Jacob. See, that's the point. He's saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have raised already. They're alive. That's not his point. The point is they're dead. They are dead. But somehow, based on God's everlasting covenant, they're not. But no one imagined that Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob have raised from the dead. That's not the point. It's not an issue of grammar. See, I am, not I was. They're alive. No, it's deeper than that. Because Moses is offered this 
Three ancestor formula. Who is God? He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. Well, why would it be important for Moses to know that? Because this title for God, this phrase, is a story in itself, which has everything to do with barrenness and raising up seed. The thing that they're so excited to talk about. You say, haven't you read when Moses met God? And God calls Moses to remember the story of Abraham. Well, think for a minute. When we encounter Abram Abram then and Sarai in Genesis chapter 11, they appear in a list. And there are lists throughout the book of Genesis. So-and-so was born and gave birth to so-and-so and then they died. So-and-so was born and begat so-and-so and they died. You know these lists. They're all over. But when it comes to Sarah, the text doesn't say she, they died. It says she's barren. Which is worse than death. Think about it. If there's death, then you're suggesting there was life to die. Do you see that? But barrenness, a dead womb, as Paul calls it, a dead, a, a dead uh, body, so to speak, there's no life possible. Before there even could be a life, before it could get off the ground, it's shut down by barrenness. Barrenness is worse than death in this sense. Especially for the ancient Israelite. And those laws about raising up seed for your brother, they're to protect the family, the woman who is scorned for not being able to have kids. This is a very personal pain for me. Me and my wife struggle with infertility. But that's the, not just a feature of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the stage upon which their lives are acted out. Barrenness. Here's this elderly couple, Mesopotamian elderly couple, barren. God chooses them. He chooses them to start what will later be called Israel. And actually, we'll come to it in a moment, what he says to to Abram. But Abram has this old barren wife, and she finds herself with child. And they have a child named Isaac. And Isaac goes out when he grows up and gets a wife named Rivka. And Rivka, guess what? Barren. He prays for her, and she has a child. Two kids, in fact. She has twins in her tummy. And they emerge, and the younger, Jacob, goes and finds a wife named Rachel. And Rachel, guess what? Barren. (laughs) Rachel actually says to Jacob, give me a kid or I'm going to die. It's a painful experience. That's God's choice. That's what God chose. He reached for the barren woman. He didn't start with the CEO or the priest in the temple. He started with the barren elderly woman. That was his choice. Why? Because you have no way of bragging about having a kid when you're 90 years old and you're dried up. But God gives you a child. Three in a row are at the very beginning of Israel's story. And you want to talk about how there's no resurrection. Come out of the forest, Sadducees. Step, get your noses off the trees for a moment. Come out here and look. Look at where you are. Look at this forest in front of you. Do you see it? 
Stop this whole show me a scripture garbage. Step back for a second. Look at what God's done with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Doesn't that suggest to you that if God decided for resurrection to be a thing, it'd be a thing. But see, you have a small shrunken view of God that abides by your biblical interpretation and in the rules which you use to read the Bible. And so you don't see the power of God when you read these stories. You don't go from, look what God did to these ancestors to, he could do anything. You don't make that leap. Because you're not reading the whole thing. You're not taking on board the whole of the story of what God is actually like. Because if you did, there'd be no question in your mind that death shall not have the final word. How does this sound? I promise you, Abram, to give you long life and and seed. And then Abram dies. End of the story. Nice promise. Is the promise only for this life? And then when they die, that's the final word. The promise is over. No, see, Jesus ain't talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about the God who made a covenant with them. If God makes an everlasting covenant with these men and their wives, do not imagine that when they die, the covenant's over. Death shall not have the final word in God's good world. And if you're reading scripture and your takeaway is death is the end, I don't even know what to say to you because you've been misreading it. All the while, perhaps searching for a scripture that tells you death won't be the end. But it's not going to be that easy. You're going to step back and think. You're going to have to use your imagination. How you doing? Now, when Moses or when when Abram is told that he'll have a child, they laugh. And this is God's response: Is anything beyond the Lord? At that set time, God says, "I return to you." Uh, when time revives and Sarah will have a son. Sarah just got done saying in this story, I'm dried up, no sexual pleasure for me. Don't come around here telling me I'm going to have a kid at 90 plus. But God says, no, is anything too tough for God? You see, this is the faith that Abraham is invited to share. This kind of faith. Faith that looks at God, says, I don't know everything about you, I don't know everything about the text which is connected to you, but based on what I know, I don't think anything's too hard for you. That's the faith that Abram is called to have. It's sort of blind, in a sense. It's, it's fueled by just an experience of God's mercy. It's not rooted in someone told me that you could do anything. It's rooted in I just believe that. But the Sadducees... Don't get that when they read the story of Abram. They don't come away with that same kind of takeaway. Now, Paul will later, this is great. Paul, when he's talking about the resurrection, in Romans chapter 4, look what he says. This He's talking about Abraham. He did not weaken when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Paul is saying about Abraham, he looked and he saw his old body, his old wrinkled body, and then he heard a promise that he'd have a kid. (laughs) 
And then he looked at his old wrinkled wife, and he says actually, necrosis is the word he uses, the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, the ESV has used the word barrenness, that's the point, but I wish they had kept it deadness, because the barren womb is a dead place in Scripture. Abraham saw all that. He's like, I don't think that's a problem. <laughs> I, th- I think God could do something. I, you know, it is, it is hard to believe. I am old. She is old. She's got, we've never had kids when we were young and healthy. The thought that it would happen now is ridiculous. But if you say so, <laughs> it's one of those. It's a naive kind of faith. It's beautiful. It's a trust at the deepest level in the face of evidence to the contrary. Look at what they say about Sarah and Abraham in in Hebrews. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age. She considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Did you read that, Sadducees? See how God raises up seed? See what God does, barren places? Did you catch that? Deadness, new life? You still think there could be no resurrection based on what we see in Scripture? It goes on. Now this is a little later when Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises, that is Abraham, was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's another way of saying he's in the act of sacrificing his son, the son that without whom there is no future. All of the promises hinge on this kid, and this kid is literally on the chopping block. But he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Who told Abraham that God could raise the dead? Who told him that? What passage did he turn to to make that massive leap that God could raise the dead if he wanted to? He was just using his mind. (laughs) He has an imagination. He sees God. He thinks about the experience he's had with God, or for us, the experience in our lives and what we read in Scripture, and it's a safe leap. You can say, God could raise the dead. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a kind of faith which rests in not certainty, not I'm sure it can happen because I studied it out. It doesn't rest in that. It rests in the God I see in Scripture has limitless mercy kindness, and power. And I'm, I'm living in that truth. Because that, at the end of the day, is the whole point of reading Scripture. If you come away from Scripture and you just know Scripture, you've missed it. It's not the point to just study the text over and over and over if the text doesn't draw us out into a world where there is a powerful God. We failed. And that's the flaw of the Sadducee. How you doing? We're landing the plane, promise. But what gets in the way of us seeing this? What gets in the way for you? What gets in the way for us? What stands between us 
and a reading of Scripture that fills us with wonder because we start to, you know, risk and dare to believe that God could do whatever He wants. Well, I think certainty stands in the way sometimes. That's not to say we shouldn't be certain about, about our faith. But sometimes we're so sure we figured it out, we've shut the doors on the idea of being surprised by God. God can be figured out and understood. Uh, you can have an anatomy of God and how he thinks and what he does. That gets in the way when we're on a quest just to have right answers rather than sitting with a powerful God in the face of no answers. I think uh, that leads to like a kind of dogmatism. You know this word? We don't use that. Or doctrine-heavy sort of focus. It's all about the, the truth, the doctrines, not the God to whom those doctrines are trying to guide you. That gets in the way. Biblicism. Too text-focused. Not, isn't that weird to hear someone who loves the Bible uh, to the extent that I've broke the bank financially to learn about it, and I'm telling you, you don't read it too much. <laughs> I'm not saying you can, you can never read the Bible too much, but with the wrong heart, you can really do some damage. But we can have a fel- fellowship with the Sadducees in this way. But Jesus invites these men out past the boundaries of what they think is possible. And he confronts them with the story of God in the bush. I heard Jürgen Jürgen Moltmann, he put it this way once. It blew my mind. I don't know why this didn't occur to me right away as a Christian. He says, I'm paraphrasing, that the God of the Bible is a God of beginnings, not endings. Over and over and over. He is not a God who is characterized by things coming to a close. That is to say, death. But he's always characterized by new beginnings. This is the fuel in the tank for those Christians we read about and want to be like. When they risk comfort, popularity and reputation, jobs and wealth, health. When they're doing all the things that are so exciting or just being a good father or mother or doing the mundane things in life, but doing it with a, an intention to honor God, that this is the fuel in the tank. An understanding of God is beyond powerful and mercy. But from barren wombs to dead wood, we make a transition to the bread and the cup. Because once again, at the center of our faith is the cross. Right? Every week we see it. Every week we open the thimble and we break, we don't break the bread because it's too small to break it, which is unfortunate because that's part of the point. But we have, we have the, the thimble with juice and bread already prepared for us. And every week we celebrate something that is beyond anything you could dream up. Just like we couldn't imagine a 90-year-old woman giving birth to the promised child, you don't imagine that new life would leap forth from the blood-stained wood of a Roman cross. The place where many lives were put out and snuffed out for opposing Rome, it's from that place that new life begins. Just like a dead womb. 
the dead cross. It's the place that life comes to us. Who would have thought that? In fact, just celebrating that should offend most of us. And I guarantee it offends those who don't understand what we believe. Because it's wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for God that he would use the Roman cross to give you new life? You, you believe that? Okay, go from there. <laughs> if you believe he can do that, let that be your guiding framework for thinking about God. Pretty awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you do because we can't do it. We can't, we can't accomplish what you accomplish. We can't bring forth out of dead places new life on our own, but you, God, you are unlimited in your ability. You're not constrained by hopelessness or cynicism like we are. You're not blinded by a quest for the acquisition of data and information. You're not like us, God. And we thank you for that. And there's no shame in the fact that we're not like you because you've loved us. Even these Sadducees, even though they may have gotten it wrong, it doesn't send them away as unloved creatures. But you, Father, give your love for all you have made. And your power is, is for the sake of those you love. And we're grateful, God. We thank you for this bread and the cup. Because as our knees get weak when we think about death and dying, and, and it's a part of our experience, we take this, this thimble and peel back the cellophane and find in, in this little meal a world of hope. The suggestion that death shall not have the final word. And we're so grateful, God. Sow that seed deep within good soil, God, in our hearts. That we may live daring and bold and shame-free, hope-filled lives. And through Christ our Lord. Amen.